Hello, I'm Matt Cholley and this is Politics Without the Boring Bits. Coming up on today's episode, it's a Wednesday, so it must be PMQ's Unpacked. No Tim Shipman this week, so instead we are joined by long-time Westminster watcher. He's probably seen more PMQs even than me. And Times Policy Editor Oliver White joins me to pause the action live from the House of Commons to analyse the key exchanges in real time. Lara Spirit rounds up the best of the rest. The other big political story unfolded today was Nicholas Sturgeon at the covid Inquiry. We'll chew over that with the columnists, Alice Thompson and today, James Kirkup. And don't forget, if you like what you hear on the podcast, you can find me live with Politics Like the Boy Mits on Times Radio. Listen for free on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or download the Times Radio app. That's Politics Without the Boring Bits, weekdays from 10. On yesterday's show, if you were listening, I was still recovering from fasting like Rishi Sunak. No food for 36 hours, apparently. So we tuned into his appearance on This Morning. But we do need to start. We did an item yesterday about you fasting from Sunday evening <laughs> to Tuesday morning. You've just had a bit of chicken. Is that your first bit of food in the last no, no. day? <laughs> I've already had my second pastry today. So, <laughs> no, yes, I... Um, I didn't think we'd ever be talking about this. Welcome to this morning. This is this morning. This is, here we go. No, so I, I wish I was as disciplined as has been reported. First, first thing to say. So, like all of us, I start the week with the best of intentions, and then you, you know, you hit contact with reality at some point. Now, I try on a Monday after an indulgent weekend to try and have a day of fasting and pull back. Right. Yeah, it's not totally nothing, but largely nothing. Yes, and then pick Just, it back do up. Do you have the odd nut? I do have the odd nut, exactly that kind of thing. I yeah. knew it. <laughs> I knew it. Straight on. I mean, like, I think I'll start with the best of intentions. We it's all not, do, right? Yes. But it's then, not totally nothing. But I think it's my, my problem is I love sugary things. Mm. Well, we I all do. a lot of sugary pastries and all the rest of it the rest of the week. And I like my food. I don't exercise as much as I used to because of the job. Yeah. So that is the so you thing. like a little reset. So the little reset at the beginning yeah. of the week, little detox. It's not... T- fasting is... It's not totally nothing. The odd nut. Yeah, no. No, you're not allowed that. That's not the rules, Rishi. Not. Yeah. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Not. I was drinking green tea last night. That's how bad it got. I had a green tea. Unbelievable. He's really gone down in my estimations. Absolutely livid. The odd nut. still wheeling i'm still wheeling so that's what happened yesterday well now i can bring you some breaking news a major capital letters big news story so i was down in westminster last night picking up the girls bunch of some mps who else did i see i saw down there anis sawa scottish labour leader was down there some tory mps i was chatting to picking up all of the intel number 10 insiders well i can now on this program exclusively reveal more details of Rishi Sunak's shocking admission. I do have the odd nut. They are, in fact, this programme has learned, cashew nuts. But more than that, on fasting days, he usually has a green apple and some cashew nuts. Apples! He's eating apples! While he's... That... Nuts and apples, that's not fasting if you're nibbling on nuts and apples all day. He's two cheese slices short of a plowman's. I am, sh- I am shocked. I am shocked. Now, my number 10 source insists they never actually briefed out his fasting. They never said he didn't eat anything for 36 hours. It's all a bit of a misunderstanding. But I feel, I feel like I've been lied to. I wonder if this has ever happened in politics before. Maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe not. Anyway, more on that throughout the show today. Uh, Jill says, sorry, Matt, but I'm just so amused by how furious you are still are. She's sorry about that. I am genuine. I mean, if anybody knows me, the o- my only hobby is eating. Right, better get on with it, I suppose. The Columnists. Yes, and usually on a Wednesday we'd have Ali Burt. We've got the Ali bit. Alice Thompson is here. Hello, Alice. Good morning. But Robert Crampton is away. He is in the Caribbean. In Barbados. I know. I think it's a bit much in January when we've just had Christmas. I mean, I'm slightly envious, I have to say. I, well, now we've said where he is, he might get papped. True, true. <laughs> and joining us for Alica Cup is James Kirkup. Uh, he used to be a journalist, but he's much better now. Uh, he's a, a partner, a, a Pella Partners. 
No, you are about a pedal. Is that right? I'm a partner at a pedal advisor. A pedal advisor has been a hack. Yeah, he used to be a hack, and he's also at the Social Market Foundation as well. Uh, let's start then with Nicola Sturgeon at the COVID inquiry. We've obviously heard from lots of other people who've sort of dropped a minute on lots of funds. Uh, but here she is being asked by uh, Jamie Dawson, KC, about messages between Humza Yousaf, who was then her health secretary, and James Leach, the clinical senior clinical advisor to the Scottish government. It, it appears from that, and indeed the other messages which have now come to light, that informal messaging, in particular WhatsApp, was a frequent part of the way in which the Scottish <coughs> Government conducted its business in COVID. Were you unaware of the fact that that was the case as First Minister during the course of the pandemic? Um, the exchanges you refer to, I would have had no knowledge of and had no sight of uh, before seeing them in the course of this inquiry. It, it, if you're asking me, Mr Dawson, did I not know that anybody in the Scottish Government was using WhatsApp? Of course that's not the case. WhatsApp had become, in my view, probably too common a means of communication. But I think the exchanges you're talking about would, certainly from what I have seen, would not suggest that government decisions were being taken through WhatsApp. Sounds like somebody in the room's got COVID. Very big loud cough. Um, uh, James, what do you make of this? The, the, you know, it wasn't... I'm old enough to remember when Nicola Sturgeon was a world leader. Bestrode the world like a narrow colossus. Um, yeah, I mean, it, 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 there's a certain pleasing amount of uh, yeah, downfall to this. That you, know, you, you remember the days, the early days of COVID, when, you know, early mid-days of COVID, a lot of Twitter had decided that actually Nicola Sturgeon had it right and the Scottish government was doing everything, everything right and, and, and the government in London was doing everything wrong. Um, turns out, actually, the, the differences between the two were not that much after all. And certainly that's been borne out in, you know, miserably, in that, it, it, yeah, we have a very similar death rate uh, between England and Scotland. It actually, you know, turns out politicians aren't that different after all. Yeah, so if you look at the, the ONS stats on this, the uh, um, mortality rates and how they compared. So this is from January 2020 until the middle of 2022. Uh, England's death rates were 3.2% higher than would normally be expected. Uh, Scotland's were 3% higher, uh, which that, that tiny gap is not quite what you'd expect, given the the perception, Alice, of how... Well, I had Nicholas half my Sturgeon family was. living in Scotland, so it was quite oh. weird for me during COVID yeah. because my brother was up there with all his children in Edinburgh and were half Scottish. So it, I could see it, it, she was playing everyone out, really. I mean, she loved the fact that it looked like Scotland was better off yeah. and they were almost semi-independent the whole way through the pandemic. What I really mind is the WhatsApps because I think when one of her aides said that it was a pre-bed ritual to get rid of all your WhatsApp messages, you realise they knew exactly what they were doing. You wouldn't bother getting rid of them if there was nothing in them, if they were anodyne. The whole point is they knew they were conducting business over them and that they shouldn't have been right then. And I think there is something really unedifying about knowing that during the pandemic they were tidying their traces, that they already realised that they'd got yeah. a lot wrong. And actually worse than that, she said specifically she was going to hand them over. Mm. Um, is there a... I mean, it's... it's I suppose the striking thing is the, the, on the policy, it's a reminder that there is a big gulf between personality and policy, that Boris Johnson gave the impression of being a bit all over the place, while she was essentially, a, you know, following... In fact, a couple of times she went on calls with him, didn't she, uh, where he would tell her what he was planning to do in England and then she would announce would it, it before would, he would, did. Would, yeah, and, and, and that became relatively quite corroded. That's probably something that when I think the inquiry gets past some of the, the soap opera stuff, and obviously we've got a day of... I'm sure at some point she's going to be asked about some of the more colourful language yeah, she said to have used. I see yeah, some of the broadcasters saying warning, yeah, language warning, um, given that we, we know she's got some quite fruity, fruity phrases coming up. Um, when we get past the soap opera bit, we get to the actual serious sub substantial mm. business of how, how government worked or did not work during you know, during the pandemic, yeah. and that that that, you know, that stuff. You know, the feeling among ministers in London that you couldn't trust the Scots because they would then jump jump the gun and pre-announce it was corrosive of good government. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's not how, you know, old old Scottish act speaking here. Yeah. That's devolution was not supposed to work that way. There was always supposed to be more of a degree of good chap theory cooperation between London uh, London and Edinburgh, uh, and that's I think going to be yeah something worth you know it's a proper it's a proper grown up point to explore for you know, for the inquiry about how to how to handle future pandemics. Well, this was her chance, really, to show that, that mm. independence was a possibility, that she was this 
she was this Colossus, that she thought that she was this strong leader and that, you know, she could push Scotland forward. And actually, she has proved herself to be corrupt. And, you know, in many cases, you know, we could, as you say, we saw what Boris Johnson was like. We knew that he was a bit of a buffoon. We knew that he wasn't up with everything, that we knew that he was fudging the figures sometimes, that, you know, you, you knew what the personality was like. Was she pretending Weirdly, that she was, he was very a, together and organised? He was showing more of the workings. Mm. You know, the, the, <laughs> yes. you know uh, deliberately or otherwise, but the... the, the the te- tension between his liberal instincts mm. and the need to get a grip on this and the and the the economy versus health and all that, you know, all of that was being played out fi- in a physical manifestation with it, which she was suggesting was all very easy and straightforward publicly. Well, behind the scenes, they're having exactly the same conversations. Um, uh, Alice, let's talk about teeth. Well, I only wrote this actually because I had... James has got his own teeth. Excellent. <laughs> I have the worst teeth. My whole family had very bad teeth. I had such bad teeth that... I am in a case study, actually, uh, because wow. I had to have braces. I, for a long time, when I went to Oxford uh, to uh, the John Radcliffe Hospital when they only just started doing braces. So I, I am quite keen on good teeth. And I was very lucky because I got it on the NHS. But I think the fact now that nine in ten people can't get onto a dental NHS waiting list and actually get a place, eight in ten children can't, that one in seven children aren't seeing a dentist at all, that a quarter of the population, adult population, aren't seeing a dentist. And you can say it's cosmetic, but it isn't in the end that actually, you know, if you've got fillings, if you've got that have fallen out and crowns and abscesses, you can't go into work. We're losing like 24 million days a year from people with appalling toothache. So it's, it's not just cosmetic. We do actually need people to have good teeth. And the idea that we've given up completely on an NHS no, dental absolutely. service and is appalling. It, at the risk of sounding a bit of media love in you, yeah, unless you're, you're calling this morning is one of those, you know, columns that, you know, good columns pro- provoke different reactions. Yours was one of those sort of nod along columns. So you nod think, yes, yes, this is right. <laughs> Everyone should read, us, we everyone should read, read yeah. columns this morning and agree with it because, <clears> yeah, she's right. It also, it's, I suppose it's like, it's an erosion of the sort of the, the universal state that we're all supposed to be paying into and then you sort of mm. get out of. If It's another bit of the state that well, everyone also, is supposed to be able to get access and you can't. But also, you are actually paying. So unless you're pregnant or a child mm. or you're on certain benefits, you are actually paying towards it. So if you have a, a checkup, you have to pay you know, 40 quid. And if you have a filling, you have to pay 60 yeah. quid. It's not like I mean, it's a, it's totally free. Dent, it's not a rip-off. Yeah, and dentistry, dentistry, actually a bit like general practice, will always be one of the sort of slightly ragged edges of the idea of the NHS mm. as a free at the point of mm. use public service because actually dentists are essentially private contractors much like GPs yeah, they, yeah, and to be fair yeah, they get paid they, yeah, they respond we all of us respond to economic signals yeah, they do what they're paid to do uh, yeah, uh, and yeah, at the moment we don't, we don't have a system that provides adequate incentive and financial reward for dentists to allocate their time to treating mm. NHS patients and, and, and yeah, as, as I was pointing out this morning there are a few who will essentially out of goodwill use their private practice use the income from their private practice to subsidise their, their NHS work, but not all of them will do that. Mm. So, I mean, yeah, absolutely, yeah. And they, they, that sort of more, you know, more intervention <laughs> is necessary because, you know, worse teeth, will, you know, worse, te- with, worse teeth, I've got terrible teeth, <laughs> lead to worse health and have that, that And also it's a way on, of, you know, it, often they can spot other things or, yeah. I, you know... Yeah, so oral cancer is a yeah. really big issue and, and they've, you know... Yeah. You have sort of ten thousand people dying a year, and and that's a huge amount. And you can spot that early if you're a dentist, particularly for you and I, Matt, down in the West Country. It is a disaster. So, Devon and Somerset don't seem to have any. I'm from I'm from Northumberland. I'll I'll pick I'll pick northeastern teeth. Well, I think they're pretty bad too. Yeah, I live in Hampshire now, so I've got a dentist literally around the corner. And London's not too bad. I mean, the problem is they're constantly haranguing me to go to the hygienist. Are they the mm. worst people in in the world? Hygienists. Mm. They're so aggressive and rude. Uh, well, I mean, yeah, yeah, that, that is the, the classic dentist. You, you can see you can see the dentist. Oh, that's all right. I suppose brush a bit more. You, know, you go to the dent. You go to the hygienist. Oh my god. <laughs> Yeah, I, I can't believe like you haven't floss last week. You're going to die. Your gums will recede and your head will fall off. But I don't think we go that much anymore, do we? Because the problem is... This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT. Because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises. From the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer. Which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. 
No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. It's so expensive, it's expensive. I only go every yeah. couple of years. Um... Let's talk about well, in fact, Jamie. While we're, while we're praising people, you've also written um, about the nanny state and how that's that is coming, which is also very good. Well, thank you. And uh, maybe I suppose well, it goes back to the old idea that you know, if you, you do need inf- intervention. Well, well, yeah. This I, I've written. I've, I've written. Actually, strange. I've written two places this week because I, 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 I scribbled a bit on on LinkedIn because I'm oh, all yeah. modern and corporate like that. Yeah. And then that, that then some of my friends at the Spectator then reproduced reproduced that that on on Spectator. Yeah. Do, do essentially look at the sort of the future of public health intervention after the vaping ban. Or, or you know the disposable vaping bags. I, I thought it was quite interesting that you know, for all you know, we we often when when governments try and ban a thing, you, we get a lot of political and media noise from a bunch of our of, you know, friends and former colleagues who are sort of taking the libertarian view that Britain doesn't want nanny statism. You can't intervene. You can't tell us what to do. Actually, public opinion is kind of generally in favour of it. Most people, you know, most people are quite keen to you know, on, authoritarian intervention. Yeah. And when you, you know, even even to the point of actually you generally get fairly you know, fairly solid support for for taxes to make make unhealthy stuff more you know, yeah, more, yeah. more expensive. It's My actually, favourite stat from the uh, COVID times, whether he's like, do you support face wearing, you know, wearing face masks, and social distancing, you know, uh, during the pandemic or permanently? And something like one in five people wanted to shut nightclubs. Yes, yes. forever, forever. Yes, not yes. just like no, as a temporary measure, but just forever. Yeah. Yes, no, um, we're, we're a fairly. I love fairly... the nanny state though because I think actually it just means that we then don't have to do it. So if you then, you know, if you have fewer you know, sweets yeah. and chocolates near children, but, if you have fewer chicken shops near schools, I do think it makes a difference, and yeah. and it just makes it a lot easier for uh, everyone. There uh, is. So much temptation everywhere. I but. think there is there is more there is more of it to come. Partly because yeah, for the, the, the fiscal yeah. reasons that yeah, un, yeah, unhealthy populations are going to cost mm. more money. The NHS will, it will not be sustainable long term unless yeah. we actually intervene earlier and more effectively. Uh, and actually, I do I do think yeah, I think there's a yeah, long term question about public opinion. I think I suspect young people. Oh, now I'm old enough to say young people today. <laughs> I think yeah, young people today yeah are probably going to be more health sensitive and more uh, yeah more open to yeah, to an interventionist approach on in this stuff. Than some of our, yes, you know, us middle middle aged libertarians are. Oh, very good. Well, in fact, uh, you've teed up quite nicely the, our next conversation. So uh, we talk a lot about polling and public opinion on this show, but a really interesting uh, sort of deep dive that uh, YouGov have just done, uh, where they've looked back over a few months of polling. So, so this is drawing on fourteen thousand people that they've polled over the last few months uh, to look at some of the breakdowns and different age groups that are voting. Uh, and what it reveals is that you have to go up to uh, the over 70s before you get to an age group where more people say they'll vote Conservative than Labour. 43% of Conservatives over the age of 70, uh, 43% for the over 70s say they vote Tory, compared to 23% uh, for the uh, for Labour. Even amongst 60 to 69-year-olds, 33% say they'd vote uh, Labour to 31%. For conservatives, at the other end of the scale, and this is obviously talking about you know future generations or that, the big problem that the Tories have got, 56% of 18 to 24-year-olds backing Labour, just 9% backing the Tories. Now, is this just the nature of we are heading possibly for a change election, if you look at the headline polls, Alice, or is this an existential problem for the Tories? I think it is a huge problem for the Tories. I mean, I'm amazed there are 9%, actually, because I think <laughs> I haven't come across anyone young who would even just sort of consider it. The, the Tories there's, lost there's that. There's always Tory fogies at university. Yeah, well, they, so. but they lost the university vote. That was what's so surprising. So I think if I were them, that's what I'd be most worried about, is they've lost that entire graduate vote, and that doesn't come back again now, we know, until 70. And actually, you can see the Tories realise this, because most of their policies are skewed towards the elderly, but they should try and look at the young yeah, it's I mean, and just make it, some sort of effort towards them. It's the effort, James, to... To weirdly shore up what they've got rather yes. than to extend well, what but, they have. But, but okay, but, but remember, you know, 
the Tories do have quite a slight. They got a big majority in 2019. Mm-hmm. So obviously, when you're defending a big majority, yeah, core vote strategy makes a bit of sense. But I mean, yeah, that said, I mean, yeah, obviously, this is a yeah, this is a horrible problem for them. I think yeah, I think a big part. Uh, yeah, it's not unusual for young younger people to yeah, vote Labour, the older people vote Tory. But what's what's going on? I think I think housing is a big part of this. I think yeah, we 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 probably don't pay enough attention to the fact that. Yeah, if you look at the way that yeah, the pattern of of home ownership and more, and mortgage holding has shifted, uh, well, yeah, well, yeah, a generation ago, you know, it, we, uh, the mortgage rate was really important. You, know, you look at George Freeman this week and you know, blog, you know, blogging about his mortgage rate, um, but forcing out of government. Actually, now we only about a third of the people in the country have a mortgage. Mm. You've got a third of people who have have gone 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 beyond that. They've paid off their mortgage. They've got at least one entirely you know, solely owned, owned home, possibly more than one second owned, second home ownership. Very very big in the in the over sixties. And there's a third of people at the at the lower end of the income, you know, sorry, at the, the age spectrum who don't have a mortgage because they can't yeah. get one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that, yeah, I think that will, assuming we get a Labour government after the general election, it will be a government elected by largely the third, the renting third. And a big chunk of the mortgaged third, um, and it will probably govern for those people. So, I, I, and that actually don't need. But yeah. what's what's so interesting? The point you're making is in 2019, the point at which uh, a voter is more likely to have voted Conservative than Labour went down to 39, uh, and that was down from 47 at the last election. So something has happened even since 2019. That is partly the Boris effect, though. So I think some of the yeah, young probably. probably thought it was quite entertaining and didn't really take it too seriously. I mean, what worries me is how few of them are voting at all. So I can't understand that. I would think that, you know, you've had the pandemic when you've been very hard hit as the young person. And that's, a big, had prob- that's a big problem for Labour, is they do need yeah. all these people to They're turn out. They're not going to get out. Yeah. So that, if, I mean, if it looks like a foregone conclusion. And the Labour's so, sort of the safety, safety first strategy of Labour, no policies, no commitments, mm. no nothing, yeah, it, it keeps you off the front page. You're off the front page and stop it. it, it doesn't give away free hits to the Tories, but it doesn't inspire people. Yeah, yeah. And the young are quite weirdly anti-Keir Starmer, so I'm always fascinated that they might be pro-Labour, but they don't like that wing. You know, if you forget that they were the ones that liked Jeremy Corbyn quite a lot of them, so yeah. they are more left-wing, as you would expect for them to be. I but, quite want to see the breakout. they want to be inspired, that's the big yeah. thing. Yeah, uh, I do want to see the breakout between male-female, because I think young women are very much more likely to be oh, anti-Tory. We'll try and get hold of that, because I, I, um, I suspect they can do that. Uh, right, uh, let's return uh, to something we talked about last week, Alice, toilets. We loved this one. Uh, we talked about public toilets. It's been estimated that half of the public toilets have, in the UK have shut in the past decade. Somerset was the reason we talked about last week because they were planning to cl- close all of their uh, council. Uh, You're talking about the West Country, Matt. I find that I know, very, it's very hard to uh, Claire Cohen has been writing about uh, this problem in Times 2 today and joins us. Hi, Claire. Hi there. So what is the unintended consequence of all these public toilets closing? Well, I'm sorry to come on and immediately lower the tone, but here we are. Um, So there have been two chaps in uh, Hertfordshire who have been fined £88 each, although I I believe one of them has now had that fine retracted. But still, they were handed these fixed penalty notices for relieving themselves in a lay-by in Hertfordshire. So that is the unintended consequence. We've got, um, well, something we're all familiar with, isn't it, being caught short, but actually fines being handed out now by Decorum Borough Council in Hertfordshire, um, who have a private contractor on patrol looking for people committing this offence. There's part of me that just thinks, just that, instead of spending money on the contractors, why not spend money on having the toilets open? Yes, well, you'd think that would make sense, <laughs> wouldn't it? I think part, part of the problem, I think, is it's just been, it's just been a bit normalised, hasn't it? I mean, I, I don't know if you discussed um, the pandemic in your discussion last week, but, but of course, you know, we were all on our daily walks. The public toilets that do remain were closed, and so... This sort of going al fresco has been even more normalised than before, I think. James, <laughs> uh, um, I mean, I'll try to lower the tone and talk about public policy and nerdy things. I mean, this is you know, one of the most horrible offshoots of 10, 15 years of under the underfunded local, local government, um, which has been the sort of. You know, uh, yeah, we, we, we've reached the point where a couple of weeks ago, even you know, a bunch of Tory MPs wrote to wrote to you know, to ministers to say. Councils don't have enough money. Fix this. Um, you know, we, we we had essentially a decade long approach of uh, you know, inflicting austerity on on the bits of the state that yeah. weren't so visible in London, local authorities, and also you know, were, were part and of you this shift is, the blame, you know, and you know, nobody's blaming. You know, we've got to have a new settlement. We've got to, have, we've got to yeah, have, yeah. Have, have, have a new settlement for lo- lo- local government financing. That I allows. thought the piece was unfair, saying that actually it's always men who are going for Luke's. Oh, you got to fess up. I th- yeah, I think women are quite bad at it. If you're long, kind of long walks, middle aged women. I have to say that they are always kind of nipping off behind bushes. So 
I'm, I'm just amazed. I think maybe Claire, it's the do you, pandemic. Claire, do you want to share anything with the group? Uh, well, yes. I mean, the piece doesn't say it's only men. It says it's <laughs> I know, mo- yeah, mostly. I just wondered if you'd, you'd, you'd ever, uh, ever, ever committed this act, Claire. Oh, yes, of course. And I admit to it in the piece, especially on countryside walks. I mean, that's the classic, isn't it? Yeah. You know, you're on a four or five hour walk. I mean, who can who can hold it in for that entire time? But I do think there's a distinction to be drawn between countryside and urban environments. Yeah, I think that's right. Jane, yeah, yeah. James is absolutely right. And of course, the other problem is, you know, cuts uh, to street cleaning as well. Yeah. So we're left in this situation where we haven't got the public loose, we've got underfunded local councils, and we haven't got the streets being cleaned in the same way either. James Kirkup and Alice Thompson. Of course, you can read Alice Thompson in The Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription at thetimes.co.uk. Up next, it's PMQ's Unpacked. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. PMQ's Unpacked on Times Radio. Unpacking the politics and cutting through the crossfire. Order, order. I call Matt Chorley and Oliver Vines. Yeah, Oliver White is here. Uh, Times uh, policy editor, because uh, Tim Shim is not here. I was, uh, I was joking earlier about you've probably watched even more PMQs than I have. Oh, God. Almost certainly a decade's worth. When did you join the... the... Two, actually, longer than that, 2010. Oh, did you? Oh, mm. I've definitely seen more than you. <laughs> oh, I started in the gallery in 2005. <laughs> so I apologise. My chair's developed a weird noise. Why is it doing that? It's... Anyway, uh, what do you think will come up at PMQs today, Ollie? Well, I think Sunak would like Northern Ireland to come up at PMQs. You know, obviously he got the the deal with the DUP over the line. Um, Downing Street are extremely uh, pleased with that. He would also like to talk about pharmacies, but I suspect Keir Starmer will have other ideas. And it's it's an interesting week. I mean, migration might be something that Starmer wants to talk about, but we'll we'll have to see. It feels like a week where Keir Starmer could turn up and sort of drop a story into the middle of proceeding. You know, sometimes leaders of the opposition, you know, insert themselves into an yeah. existing story. It doesn't feel like that's, you know, there, there isn't one dominant story he's got to be seen to be addressing. No, that's true. And we know that this week Labour want to focus on business. They want to uh, very much be selling this idea that they are the natural party of the business rather than the Conservatives. So he might want to do something along that, along those lines to sort of put pressure on the government while at the same time sort of painting Labour as, you know, the party that is going to get the economy growing again. Uh, so we will... Uh, he hasn't started yet, has he, uh, Keir Starmer? No, no, fine, 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 fine. Uh, Lava Spirit will be here to round up the best of the best uh, in uh, in just a moment. Um, is this week's... Is it just a coincidence the DUP deal happened this week? Or is this part of uh, Rishi Sunak's plan to, to be a sort of hive of activity this week, given the last the last couple of weeks... He's stepped back and that void's been filled by troublemakers. I think Rishi Sunak has been in Downing Street long enough to know that you can't do your grid on the DUP. Um, This is something that's been in the offing for several weeks. I think the government hoped that it would happen earlier than it actually did. I think there was some suggestion that it might have happened last week. But the DUP is not to be rushed into saying yes to anything. Uh, When will we actually get the details of this deal? Uh, 
we're going to get a statement from Chris Keaton-Harris probably just after two o'clock today, and then the government is going to do a sort of briefing on what they're describing as a command paper. Now, uh, the interesting bit about this is we don't think that other senior members of the DUP have actually seen the sort of written government proposals. So after those are published, it will be worth keeping an eye on people like Nigel Dodds, who, of course, is um, Jeffrey Donaldson's predecessor. He's known to have reservations about this. So we'll see whether the deal that they've actually agreed, how much of the sort of senior figures within the DUP actually agree with Donaldson. There were some people pointing out that because the meeting went on for so long, the night before last, mm. that was a sign that it all was not well? I think all is not well. I think, you know, Donaldson has wanted to do this deal for quite a long time, but he is aware that, you know, there is a very large segment in his party that will not be happy with whatever um, sort of compromise he thinks he's won. He hasn't got what he stated at the outset. I don't think under any objective sense the DUP's seven tests have been met, but I think the deal that he has got, he realises it's the best that he's going to get and has decided that, you know, the gamble is worth taking. And is there a political risk here that it just sort of you get if somebody the DUP won't be happy? This potentially opens a way for Nigel Farage to be on the airwaves and uh, and so on. It just puts Brexit back in you know <laughs> back on the table in a way that it probably doesn't help Rishi Sunak especially. Yeah, I mean I, I agree with that. Um, I think you know there's going to be murmurings from 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 the sort of Brexiteers on the Tory right, particularly if there's anything suggesting that Britain is going to be held back in any way by Northern Ireland, that it won't be able to do take advantage of the so-called Brexit freedoms which they've championed. Um, you know, Sunak himself feels he's not really getting credit for that. This is one of the most intractable, intractable problems that he inherited. Uh, with the Windsor framework, he fixed relations with the EU. And with this, he's got power showing up and running. And they feel that these are pretty significant achievements and that you know Westminster largely has just met it with a shrug. Well, very good. Let's see what uh, Keir Starmer does choose to go on. Let's go live to the House of Commons. It's PMQ's Unpacked on Times Radio and on the Times Radio YouTube channel. This is question number one from Keir Starmer. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Can I join the Prime Minister in welcoming the DUP statement about the return of the Northern Ireland Executive? This is an important moment, and we now need all sides to work together to get Stormont back up and running for the people of Northern Ireland. Mr Speaker, I too met the families of Grace, Barnaby and Ian on Monday, um, and it's impossible to express in words the horror that they've been through and continue to go through. We must all redouble our efforts to do everything that we can to help them with their campaign. And of course, Mr Speaker, this week, two young lives, 16-year-old Max and 15-year-old Mason, were taken in Bristol. And I know the whole House will join me in sending condolences to their families and their friends. Mr Speaker, one of the most difficult experiences for any member of this House is speaking to those at the sharp end of this government's cost-of-living crisis. So nobody could fail to be moved by the plight of the member for Mid-Norfolk. His mortgage has gone up £1,200 a month. He's been forced to quit his dream job to pay for it. A Tory MP counting the cost of Tory chaos. After 14 years, have we finally discovered what they meant when they said... We're all in this together. <laughs> well, Mr Speaker, uh, thanks to the mortgage charter that the Chancellor introduced last year, millions of mortgage holders across the country are benefiting from support with their mortgages because it's important, rather than take the approach that the Honourable Gentleman just did, is actually focus on the practical support in place to help people who do need help. And someone on a typical mortgage is able to now save hundreds of pounds thanks to those uh, reforms. And actually what we, have, what we have recently seen is mortgage applications now at a multi-month high as a result of confidence returning. But if he really cared about helping people with the cost of living, Mr Speaker, he would actually do more to celebrate and acknowledge the fact that thanks to our plan, millions of working people will now start to pay hundreds of pounds less in tax from this month's pay slips, Mr Speaker. But we all know that's not a priority for him. He said he wanted to back people with a cost of living, but now he has described tax cuts, I read, as salting the earth. Uh, his shadow chancellor, it seems, is equally confused. In Davos, she said she did back tax cuts, but back here in Westminster, she called them a scorched earth policy. 
she, she, she obviously can't decide which Wikipedia page to copy this week. So uh, I suppose the risk for Keir Starmer, uh, Ollie Wright, is that by asking about the cost of living crisis, which is obviously a big concern, mm-hmm. it does give Rishi Sunak an excuse to talk about the national insurance cuts, uh, which have just come into force, which the government thinks not enough people know about. Yeah, it was a slightly awkward segue by the Prime Minister, but he had his pre-prepared lines on tax yeah, he cuts. He, pu- he pulled it off. But it's quite good from Starmer's point of view to highlight this case of George Freeman, who kind of madly wrote on his blog that he was struggling to pay his mortgage on a £120,000 ministerial salary. And I think it is one of those stories that weirdly does resonate mm. with people. They think, yeah, what on earth? <laughs> well, also, the, it's the implication that therefore he's going to go off and make yeah. loads more money yeah. and, and elsewhere. Sort of, and cash in on his ministerial experience, which plays within this whole idea of yeah. sort of, you know, governmental sleaze. It's, yeah, it's not a good look. And you can imagine people in Downing Street were pretty furious about it and you know, not surprising that Starmer thought to highlight that a bit. Yeah, well, let's uh, see. if it, It'll be interesting because one of the criticisms the past couple of weeks uh, we've had of uh, Keir Starmer is that they've been individually OK lines, but they didn't sort of amount to anything. Mm. So it'll be interested to see if today it does build into a sort of a mounted case of being, you know, out, using individual cases to sort of uh, draw a bigger narrative. Let's go back to the House of Commons. It's uh, question number two from Keir Starmer. Mr Speaker, for every £2 he says he's giving people back, he's taking £10 out of their back pocket in higher tax, and he thinks they should be dancing in the street and thanking him. There are 200,000 people, Prime Minister, just like the member for Mid-Norfolk, coming (coughs) off fixed-rate mortgages and paying more each and every month because they crashed the economy. Does the Prime Minister actually know how much their monthly repayments are going up by? Prime Minister, as I said, Mr Speaker, someone on a typical mortgage of about £140,000 with 17 years left is currently paying around £800 as a result of the ability to extend their mortgage term or switch to a six-month-only interest-only mortgage. They will be able to save hundreds of pounds, and that is someone on the average mortgage, uh, Mr Speaker. But again, again, Mr Speaker, again, he says he cares about the cost of living. The thing that would have the biggest impact on everyone's cost of living is the fact that his ideas to spend £28 billion, which we had just confirmed this morning by a shadow Treasury Minister, I heard, confirmed that they remain committed to them, but he has no plan to pay for this £28 billion, Mr Speaker. No no plan at all. And that's typical Labour economics, because they want to keep the spending but drop the payment plan. And I actually saw at the weekend their former leader, his mentor, was clear that they'll make their sums add up with tax rises on people's assets. Their homes, their pensions and their businesses. It's the same old Labour Party, Mr Speaker. No plan and back to square one with higher taxes. Oh, we need a back to square one. Ring-a-ling-a-ding-dong. So, I think... It feels like quite a long time ago now. Um, Keir Starmer's question was (laughs) how much more people paying on their mortgages. Yeah, it was a sort of... He was going for the gotcha moment. You don't know, but actually... I mean, he'd have got away with that with Boris Johnson because Boris Johnson would have had no idea, but um, Sunak's a slightly different kind of politician. And he knows about this government oh, scheme yeah. they've got up. I mean, to be clear, if you are paying a lot on your mortgage, having a, making it easier to extend your term or go interest only doesn't mean you don't pay that money back. In fact, no. you're probably going to pay more in the long term. Uh, yeah. So it's, it's good if you are in trouble, but it's not necessarily a solution to the... To the problem. No, it was a very much a sort of sticking plaster to get round the to get round the problem and to try and actually re- reduce repossessions, which is what they were really worried about at the time when they introduced that scheme. And we haven't seen those in the same way that, that no. we have done in the past. No, and part. actually, the government deserves some credit for that alongside the industry. They did actually sit down, they worked out a package, and you know the, the view was that these are people in normal times who would be able to afford their mortgage, but they can't just at the moment because of high interest rates. And the thought was that if you could put some measures in place that would sort of tide them mm-hmm. over that period, you know, you would, they would be able to keep their home, and so far that's worked. I suppose, ironically... What that's done is stunted or perhaps elongated the length of time that interest rates have had to go up. Because the whole point of interest rates going up was to put the squeeze on people's spending to try and bring down inflation. You want to squeeze a bit, but not too much. So if you've got the Bank of England putting them up, and then over here the government's introducing a scheme to limit the squeeze, then you end up potentially 
yeah. elongating. I thought, I thought the other interesting thing just is um, Sunak's attack on Ed Miliband's point about going after your assets. Yeah. He, that's the first time I've heard them really talk about that. That was in the Sunday Times in yeah. the weekend, wasn't it? Yeah, the interview the first with Ed time, Miliband. And you can see, you know, at this point, you see what Sunak is trying to do and Starmer to a lesser extent. They're trying to test out campaign um, arguments, campaign slogans, what works, what doesn't work, and they use PMQs quite a lot to do that. Yeah. So you could see this coming up time and time again, I suspect. It's and I suppose it's, it's one of those things where is it better to be accused of having a twenty-eight billion pound plan, <laughs> which isn't uh, doesn't have any detail, or is it better to give some detail and go, oh, yeah, now it turns <laughs> out you're going to go after your assets. It's, yeah, it's an interesting uh, debate. That. Well, let's go back to the House of Commons. It's about twenty bigger new PMQs unpacked with uh, with Ollie Wright as well this week. Let's go back to the House of Commons. There's question number three from Keir Starmer. Mr. Speaker, they've crashed the economy, mortgages are through the roof, they've doubled the debt, and who thinks he thinks he can stand there and lecture other people about fiscal responsibility? But he didn't answer the question. Hundreds of thousands of people are coming off fixed rate mortgages and facing huge mortgage increases. And the Prime Minister won't even do them the courtesy of answering the question. No, he didn't. So I'll ask him again. I was very clear at the beginning. It's Lindsay Hall again. And I mean that my constituents to hear, if yours don't, please leave. Kiss time. Does the Prime Minister have any idea how much mortgages are going up by this month for those coming off fixed rate mortgages? Prime Minister. But again, I'll just point him back to my previous answer, Mr Speaker, as I went him through Everyone's situation will be different. Someone on a typical mortgage of around £140,000, who's currently paying £800, will be able to keep their mortgage payment essentially the same by using the facilitations that the Chancellor has put in place. But again, that's what we've done to help people, Mr Speaker. But again, it's incumbent on him to explain to the British public how his 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 policy of decarbonising the grid by 2030 is going to be funded. He won't give the answers, but helpfully, the Shadow Energy Secretary popped up at the weekend in an interview in the Sunday Times. He said they don't need a plan to to pay for it, Mr Speaker, because, in his words, it will produce real savings and it makes clear economic sense. Now, the Shadow Leader here doesn't want to talk about it at all, but let me tell him, I see all these years later, it's the same story. The Right Honourable Member for Doncaster North has a promise in stone and everyone else just looks away in embarrassment <laughs> oh that takes me back the yeah. Edstone. yeah still going strong still going strong the Edstone in people's minds uh, good use of the word facilitations uh for which you see that which is not what i've heard uh in the comments for for a long time um i can sort of see what keir starmer is driving at but it, it feels a bit he somehow made like a real life issue feel a bit technical and knotty. Yeah, I agree with you. I agree with you. And it's like your reaction when he says, "What is the what is the cost of coming someone coming off a fixed rate mortgage?" Now, well, it depends if they're going on to another fixed rate. What that fixed rate yeah, is? Actually, are they going on to a standard variable? There isn't an answer. So I sort of have some sympathy with Sunak on that one. Um, and again, he's just actually given. Rishi Sunak had an opportunity to repeat the government scheme that's been put in place. Yeah. And then go on the attack after Ed Miliband again. Um, uh, Lindsay Hoyle popping up there to tick MPs off. Actually, before PMQs even got going, he apparently uh, told MPs to exercise restraint, uh, saying recent exchanges have been lively to the point where it's becoming difficult for colleagues to hear what is being said clearly. Uh, there's been an escalation and unhelpful exchanges across the floor of the house from sedentary positions, he means people sitting down, and the attempted use of props. Is it becoming a more of a problem? Was it just we're getting more Lindsay Hoyle than normal? You, um, you, you it's normally, just a little bit, yeah. You normally watch in the, in the gallery rather than over here. Yeah, it's... I'm not sure it is. It's a sort of it's the it's the Hoyle is particularly bad on this, but Burko was bad either. It's almost as if you know it isn't PMQs unless they've stood up several times and told people to quieten down. But most people are watching it on the television, and that's not particularly obvious. It's more obvious in the chamber than if you're watching it on TV. Yeah, because actually the truth is we can always hear yeah. because the, the people speaking have got microphones yeah. on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, yeah, uh, more's the pity sometimes. Uh, right, let's go back to the House of Commons. Then uh, we are going back for questions. Is Keir Starmer going to ask again? Uh, about how much mortgages might go up by. Uh, question number four. Uh, Mr Speaker, he just doesn't get it. They crashed the economy, mortgages skyrocketing, <laughs> doubling the debt. They say, they say they're going to they're gonna max out the government's credit card at the next budget. 
and he won't. No, order. Nope. I think the chief whip's getting very carried away. He doesn't want to lead everybody for a cup of tea, does he? Come on. They have forfeited the right to be lecturing others about the economy. Somebody coming off a fixed-rate mortgage is going to be paying an average of £240 more each and every month. A constant reminder that working people are paying the price for the damage that they've done to the economy. This week, I met one of the employees at Iceland in Warrington, Phil. Lizzie Hall is up again. It's not totally clear what's happening. The same voice keeps appearing again. It won't appear anymore. So I'm just letting you know now. Kiss down. It was Simon Hart, the toy chief, who was telling us an employee at Iceland who's struggling with his mortgage. Shame. He told me that his mortgage is going up by a staggering £1,000 a month, Prime Minister. He doesn't want other averages, other people, other stories. That's what's happening to him. If the member for Mid-Norfolk on £120,000 can't afford this Tory government, how on earth can people like Phil? Well, actually, Mr Speaker, <coughs> thanks to the management of the economy, Phil and millions... I think Phil and millions of people like him are now ensuring that inflation is less than half of the rate that it was when we were talking a year ago, putting more money in their pocket. And thanks to this government, Phil and millions of other workers, not just at Iceland, but across the country, are benefiting this month in their pay packet for a tax cut worth hundreds of pounds for someone on an average salary. But I hope he explained to Phil... He explained to Phil the cost of his policies. Did he explain to Phil? Did he explain to Phil? Poor Phil. How He's Phil been is going to have this, to pay for his twenty-eight billion pound green spending spree. How it's going to cost Phil in higher taxes, more coming out of his pay packet. And did he explain to Phil that he'd be better off sticking with our plan rather than going back to square one with him? Poor Phil. <laughs> he was there. He was working in Iceland, minding his own business. Keir Starmer <laughs> comes in. And now he's been banded about at PMQs. <laughs> um, so uh, I think uh, Lindsay Hall there was ticking out. He said Mr. Gibson. So I think that might be uh, Peter Gibson, Conservative MP for Darlington, who's been told off for shouting. But clearly Lindsay Hall's on the warpath on that. Um, what will Phil make of all of that, do you think, Ollie? He'll be perplexed, won't he? I mean, interestingly, that neither Keir Starman nor Rishi Sunak also talked about Richard from Iceland. Now, Richard's a bit different from Phil, because yes. Richard obviously owns Iceland. Yeah. Um, and Keir Starman's been helping Richard, because Richard wanted to be a Tory MP, and the Tories weren't keen on Richard being a Tory MP. So now Richard wants to be a Labour MP, and he's backing Labour. Yes, Richard, does he actually want to be a Labour MP? Is well, he thought, it's only about time, time. Time. We had Richard from Iceland on uh, <laughs> earlier this week, Richard Walker, and I pointed out to him that it was only after the Tories declined his um, interest in becoming a Tory MP that he decided to switch sides. Uh, and then he talked about the cost of living, uh, because Keir Starmer had been at Iceland talking about the cost of living. And I asked him, I think it's fair to say, several times if he could point to a single policy that Labour had that would help with the cost of living. He talked in vague terms about inflation. We went round and round several times. He ended up landing on... Um, a crackdown on shoplifting, which would stop if there was less shoplifting, prices might not go up to cover the cost of the stolen. That, so right. I wasn't I wasn't fully convinced that he was on board necessarily <laughs> with all of the detail of Labour's new economic plans. Uh, but there we are. Did we find out from Keir Starmer how much more mortgages were going up by? I'm not sure we did, did we? We did because we got, we got, we a, got a figure. We yeah. got a number. Yeah. Oh, there we are. Um, right. So who's winning this one? Is it? Uh, Phil, uh, <laughs> there's George Freeman's name has been thrown about yeah. the member from uh, Mid Norfolk. He's the former minister who couldn't pay his mortgage. Is Phil in Iceland going to uh, make uh, yet further appearance? Let's go back to the House of Commons now. It's question number five from Keir Starmer. I would invite the Prime Minister to get in touch with Phil and explain to him how paying £1,000 more on his mortgage is making him better off, because that's not how he feels. He's just so out of touch. It's unbelievable. Finding hundreds of pounds extra a month, that may not seem like a big deal to the Prime Minister. But let me tell him, most people don't have that sort of money knocking around. And if that wasn't bad enough, Mr Speaker, this week, 
he told every council in the country to put their council tax up by the maximum of 5%. That's 26 tax rises now, Prime Minister. And he says everything's fine, people are better off. But when people see their mortgages going up, their council tax going up, food prices still going up, who does he expect them to believe? His boasts or their bank account? Minister. Well, Mr. Mr. Speaker, again, I, I was puzzled because again he resorts, as always, to the politics of envy here. But after recently, after recently and repeatedly, recently and repeatedly attacking not just me but the government for lifting the bonus cap, I was genuinely surprised to see that the shadow chancellor just today has announced that she now supports the government's policy on the bankers' bonus cap. I don't, I, don't know, I don't know if he mentioned that to Phil when he was having a chat with him, but I'm sure he can, he can fill us up. But I can tell him that trust, trust and economic credibility come from sticking to a plan, but it's becoming clear you cannot trust a word that he says. And again, when the Shadow Chancellor says or claims that they won't borrow much, they won't raise Phil's taxes, we now know, we now know that those promises simply again, they just aren't worth the Wikipedia page they were copied from. Ooh. I mean, not a bad joke, albeit one that's about five months late. Yeah. Four, but yeah, so that was about how Rachel Reeves wrote a book about pioneering women. women and and it turned from... out quite a lot of it had come from Wikipedia. And the Tories really tried to hammer the copy and paste chance, shadow chancellor, which didn't really take off. Poor Phil. I mean, everybody is going to be trying to find Phil. Phil's going to be very... He was, I, just, I just showed Keir Starmer where the chicken nuggets were. I didn't realise <laughs> I was... My life. I have to tell him my life story. Phil, if you're, if, you're, if you're listening and you want to get in touch, or you, if you know Phil who works... Where is it? Is it Darlington? Yeah, Iceland. It, yeah, Iceland and Darlington. Was it in Darlington? Have I made that up? If you're Phil from Iceland... Or if you're any film, maybe you're listening in Iceland. Eight seven trouble two. Start your message with the word times. Do get in touch uh, in the usual ways. Uh, um, an audacious move by Rishi Sunak to turn Keir Starmer's attacks on his personal wealth into the politics of envy. Yeah, and to bring up the banker's bonus as well. I'm not sure that does any favours to anyone. I think most voters would be equally annoyed with what the Tories have done on the bankers' bonuses they would with, with Rachel Reeves. Although, to be fair, there were quite decent arguments as to why you should get rid of the bankers' bonuses because it just um, encourages banks to pay people in other ways which are less productive. But, yeah, it's not going to be a vote winner for either the Tories or for the Labour Party. Uh, yeah, and no, clearly Rachel Reeves just smuggled that out this week, hoping yeah. that no one, uh, no one will return to it. How, <laughs> how do you, we've only got one more question left, Ollie. How do you think it's going so far? Oh... I think Sunak deserves credit for weaponising Phil. Yeah. I think, you know, Starmer comes in with Phil, but it's Sunak who comes back with Phil, Phil this and that and the other, which is, yeah, quite good sort of improvisation on his part. Somebody's just messaging, why did Phil borrow so much at low interest rates? Did he not realise they would go up? Poor Phil. <laughs> now we always Many of us have been details. in that boat. Or, or uh, the live stream, people are liking Phil. Uh, people are voting for Phil even. There's a poll on the uh, Times Radio YouTube. Uh, channel asking who's winning PMQs. Is it uh, George Freeman, my broken keyboard after I poured coffee on it just before PMQs started, or Phil from Iceland? 73% have voted for Phil from Iceland. Uh, people saying Rishi Sunak's not answering the question, but that's, you know, sort of part <laughs> of the unusual. course. Yeah, uh, um, yeah you, it's interesting because normally the Prime Minister, when confronted with a sad story about a real person, Woods go, oh, it's terrible, sorry, and I will certainly oh, look, look into, into it the and, case yeah. and I'll pass that on to my colleague or whatever. But yeah, Phil's been weaponised. Yeah, very much so. He's going to join, you know, the pantheon of pe people. Because um, who was the guy? There was a guy, I'll try and remember. I've got, was it, they might have been called Phil. There was someone at a TV leaders, I'm going mad, in Plymouth, I'm going to say, who, no, I've gone mad. I think all the party <laughs> leaders were all sort of, latching on to this one person's... Because they're all told it, in TV debates to sort of repeat... I blame Nick Clegg. Nick Clegg, yeah, yeah, He yeah. was the one who started this. Yeah. Because someone told him in the prep, what you want to do is when Gene asks the question, you say, well, Gene, and you try and engage yeah. with Gene. But now politicians do it and it just... And it they sort all of makes it. you cringe. It's like, Gene, Gene, Gene. Yeah, it was quite Phil. good for the first couple of times, but... Um, uh, well, so far, this has been all filler, no killer. Let's go back to the House of Commons. That's why they pay with the big bucks. <laughs> Mr Speaker... I actually didn't expect him to be laughing at Phil. I did not expect Stop him laughing to be at laughing Phil. at Phil. Not a Thought Labour people were laughing at Lee Anderson. Look, I made this statement very clear. Oh, Lindsay Hall's back. I don't. 
Prime Minister, it's very serious that we make sure that people here... <laughs> Even Rishi Sunak's now laughing the opposition. Lizzie Hoyle. It matters to the people who watch the proceedings of this chamber. And it's not good in the behaviour that seems to be carried out. Prime Minister. The Prime Minister just doesn't get how hard it is for millions of people across the country like Phil. That is the primary problem. Struggling with their mortgages, their bills, the spiralling cost of living. And the Prime Minister's response is never to take responsibility, show contrition or even any level of basic understanding. He's so detached, he thinks he can paint a world in which their problems simply don't exist. The problem is he can't even fool his own MPs, let alone anyone else. The member for Mid-Norfolk says he's exhausted. That's back to he's George looking Freeman forward again. to new opportunities outside of Parliament. Why doesn't the Prime Minister do him a favour, call an election, so he and the whole country can move on? Well, Mr. Oh, Mr. Speaker, Mr. Speaker, thank you, Mr. Speaker. But whether it's Phil, whether it's everyone else across the country, the plan Bell, that we're putting in place Phil. is working to help people and we're making progress. Just this week, taking action to stop children from vaping. Just this week, ensuring that people can visit their pharmacies to get the health care they need, freeing up millions of GP appointments. And just this week, millions of working people starting to see hundreds of pounds of tax cuts delivered in their pay packet, Mr Speaker. That is a plan that is working. All he's offering is £28 billion of tax rises. And that is the choice, Mr Speaker. It's a brighter future with us, or back to square one with them. Uh, so we got the we got the slogan there, a sort of party political broadcast from uh, from Rishi Sunak at the end. Yeah. An illustration that this week the tactic in number ten is to to to, to do lots of things, busy, busy, busy. You know, yeah, it's that pissing PMQs which they always plan in advance, which is the soundbite that they hope will get clipped up for the evening news. That was that was that. That was what that was at the end. Now here's an interesting question: the Labour Party have clearly identified they want to fight on the economy. Mm. Um, I, I'm not sure that they've quite got the message, the, the, the message they're trying to land. The, the, the language, it felt a bit muddy. I mean, aside from Phil, and Phil, it, it was Warrington, by the way, not Darlington. So if you're in, if you're in Warrington, Iceland right now, if you could ask for Phil, uh, um, maybe you can get in touch. Um, have the Labour Party got their own economic message beyond pointing at the Tory party and going, oh, look at that? No, I don't think they have, and I think that is... That is one of the weaknesses. And, you know, you see that. You saw that in the autumn statement when the government announced tax cuts. Labour didn't want to differentiate themselves. They didn't want to say, we're not going to do that. Um, I suspect when you get tax cuts in the budget, they're not going to want to differentiate. All they're really saying um, on the economy is, we can be trusted. Mm. And you crash the economy. They want to run that old battle, which has really been going since Liz Trust. That is the line of attack, not this is our great plan, because, you know, they've learned the lessons from history. If yeah. you have a plan on the economy, you've got something to attack. Look at the 28 billion. So this is interesting. Uh, I was just looking at YouGov's polling of the party most trusted on the economy. Uh, the Conservatives are on 22%. Uh, the Labour Party are on 25%. And on 26%, don't know. Yeah. Uh, so it's not like the Labour Party have sealed the deal on the economy, even though everyone says it's the economy stupid and it's going to be the big, you know, ultimately how the economy is doing will decide the outcome no, of the election. But if you Don't are, know is doing better than anyone. But if you were Labour looking at those figures, you would be quite heartened mm. because, you know, traditionally when it's come to elections, Labour have always been slightly behind the Tories on the economy. It's always been one of their strong points. And, you know, the fact that Labour do have that significant lead, even if it's a vast majority of people saying they don't know, is actually pretty good news for Starmer. Yeah, actually, if you go back to the 2019 election, the Tories won 39% for the best to handle the economy, the Labour Party 18%. Yeah. So they might have neutralised it rather than sort of... Uh, and I think that they'll be, they'll be happy with that. Uh, David says, for Phil's mortgage to have gone up by £1,000, he must have a mortgage of three hundred to £400,000 which might be unlikely for an Iceland worker. I mean, we don't know, David, but it's good to, Good you're doing the... Maybe his wife's uh, higher, the numbers on that. Uh, right, exactly. Maybe, maybe there's another... another. Yeah, maybe he's running... Maybe he runs Iceland. We just don't know. Just maybe it's a pseudonym for Richard. Uh, right, Lara Spirit was watching the best of the rest. Lara, overall, how was it? It was good. Good. Excellent. <laughs> we need to pick it up. Uh, this chair. I've got to do something about this chair. And I have got a new keyboard, you'll be pleased to know, so that's, uh, that's a bit of good news. That's all working. Lovely. Where are we going first, Lower? 
We are going to Robert Jenrick, who was, of course, until not that long ago, uh, a Sunak loyalist and uh, immigration minister, who asked a question that doesn't on the face of it seem to be that disobliging, uh, but actually, I think, uh, contains somewhat of a sting for Rishi Sunak. So take a listen. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Mr Speaker, a first responsibility for government is to fix the housing crisis that young people didn't cause. Three years ago, we dragged house building in this country up to the highest level since 1987, after the last Labour government left it at its lowest level since the 1920s. But house building is weakening. We need to do more. Will my right honourable friend consider using the budget to do as he and I did together during the pandemic and cut stamp duty to boost housing starts, to reignite the economy and to support thousands of businesses across our country? Well, my uh, right honourable friend is right to point out that since 2010 we have delivered two and a half million additional homes on track to deliver a million just in this parliament and help over 850,000 families into home ownership through schemes such as help to buy and right to buy. Obviously tax decisions are a matter for the Chancellor but I would point out that our existing stamp duty relief for first time buyers ensures the vast majority of first time buyers in our country pay absolutely no stamp duty. Well, that wasn't a yes, was it? But no. it's interesting. He's referring to the fact that during the pandemic, he was housing secretary, Robert Jenrick? He was housing secretary. And then uh, uh, Rishi Sunak was obviously chancellor. Um, is there any prospect of that happening, do you think, Ollie? I think they are looking at stamp duty. That is certainly one of the things they're looking at. I suspect it won't be what they end up going for. I think they'll be much more likely to look at income tax or NI. But there are people around who say, actually, it'd be a really smart move not just to cut stamp duty, but just to abolish it altogether if you have a large amount of money to play with, because that would be, um, it would help the housing market, it would help younger voters for whom the Tories have a particular problem, and it would give them a really big offer, and we find it would be very something that Labour would find very difficult to say, actually, we'll follow you on that. Uh, we've got some breaking news to bring in. Uh, we have been speaking to the Warrington branch of Iceland, <laughs> and uh, nobody there knows anyone called Phil... <laughs> and uh, there's what? There's multiple branches. We said there's multiple Iceland. There's two Icelands. Both of them have said they don't know a Phil. We, we think Phil might work in head office. Uh, and uh, one source on Politics at the Boring Bit said, judging by his tone, I wasn't the first one to get through. <laughs> so there's some poor man at a branch of Iceland in Warrington dealing with lots of calls saying, can I speak to Phil, please? Uh, but so far, we've tried both branches of Iceland. Phil is not there. Uh, Lara, where are we going next? We are going to Sir Ed Davey, of course. Now, this is interesting because... He is yet to show his face during Prime Minister's questions since he came under uh, quite a lot of scrutiny for uh, his role as the responsible post office minister during uh, the coalition government. Uh, he has been quite defiant about not holding any responsibility uh, for that injustice. Uh, and there have been quite a few comments in previous PMQs to the effect of his absence. So I think Tory MPs uh, were well primed to make quite a lot of noise when he did appear. OK, let's take a listen. Speaker... And David, my, my constituent Millie, a wheelchair user, had a serious accident at a sporting event. Millie was left waiting on the floor in pain for over two hours before an ambulance arrived. During her months in hospital since, she's been dropped badly multiple times, left stuck in her bed for days at length. She's even been told to soil herself when there's no one to take her to the toilet. Before all this, Millie was living independently and working, but the prospect of her returning to work is being destroyed by the crisis in the NHS and care system. Yeah. I'm sure the Prime Minister will agree that no one should ever have to go through what Millie has, so will he look again at our proposals to make sure every patient gets the high-quality care they need? Yeah. 
Prime Minister. Well, Mr Speaker, I'm very sorry to hear about Millie's case and if there are specific aspects of it that need to be examined, I'm sure the Health Secretary uh, will follow up with the Honourable Gentleman. And more generally, we want to make sure everyone gets the care they deserve, which is why we're not just investing record sums in the NHS, but ensuring that there are record numbers of doctors, nurses and new innovative forms of treatment like surgical hubs and virtual wards, all of which is showing that ambulance times that he mentioned are lower today than they were this time last year. So Rishi Sunak there responding in the way that the, the Prime Ministers normally do with a sad independent case and saying he would uh, look into it. I suppose, I suppose it was quite a smart question, if we're being completely cynical by uh, from Ed Davey, asking about the most serious uh, um, uh, case so that basically people had to stop barracking him given that he'd dodged PMQs up until now. Yeah, I think Ed Davey will have known that as a matter of basic decency, Tory MPs probably will have stopped jeering relentlessly at him if he asked a question like that. I think certainly not one of the weeks for a question where it's possible to continue uh, jeering had he asked something so overtly um, partisan. So not massively surprising, I think. We've got time for one more. One more. Yeah, yeah, we can do Deanna Davison. Is that right? What, what, yeah, or so, Stephen Flynn. Which would you rather? Or which do you think is better? I think Stephen Deanna is ready. So, if that helps make you, <laughs> I think I think Flynn is also ready. But De- okay, so Deanna is interesting because uh, her father, of course, sadly passed, was sadly killed um, by what is known as one punch manslaughter. Now she is no longer a minister. She's standing down uh, at the next election. Uh, she is a Tory MP, and she uh, has been a campaigner on this issue and uh, asked a question about it to Rishi Sunak today. One punch thrown, two days on life support, then three children left without a father. A four-year sentence handed down, released after two, but one grieving mother has to live a life sentence of agony. Sentencing for one-punch killers is not working in this country. Does the Prime Minister agree that now is the time to finally introduce a specific offence and a tougher minimum sentence for one-punch manslaughter? Prime Minister. I pay tribute to the work my honourable friend has done in bringing attention to so-called one-punch manslaughter and highlighting, as she knows well, the anguish those cases cause for the families of the victims. And I know the Ministry of Justice has looked very carefully at the amendment that my honourable friend has proposed, and I know that she'll be meeting the Minister for Safeguarding shortly to both discuss her specific amendment and how we might best address the wider issue. And a good example there, Laura, of a, of a former minister, now backbench, backbench MP, uh, whose campaign on this issue arrived in the Commons, you know, getting an answer from the Prime Minister about ch- changing a, a loophole in the law. Yeah, exactly. And I'm sure she will be popular uh, with her colleagues for asking that. And it's something that people associate very closely with her. So certainly good. Massive thanks to Lara Spooey and Oliver Wright. We'll be back next week with PMQs on Pat as always. Don't forget to hit subscribe and get in touch. You can email me matt at times.radio. But for now, for me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.